Have you ever had a moment where you struggled with your confidence? Maybe there was a task that you got asked to accomplish, or, or maybe there was this job that you stepped into, or, or maybe there was a, a mission that you were tasked with, or, or a goal that you needed to you know, finish and accomplish, you had a deadline, and, and your confidence was just, you're struggling. I, I remember I was growing up, uh, played soccer. I started playing soccer in my eighth grade year of school. And uh, I, I remember I got to sophomore year and I got asked to um, join the varsity team. And that year I, I was playing a position I'd, I'd never played before. In fact, I mean, I mean, I'd only been playing soccer since eighth grade. So just a couple years. And I remember stepping onto the field, being very intimidated and really struggling with, with confidence, confidence that I was going to be able to um, physically compete with the athletes that were out there, struggling with the confidence that I was going to be able to play my position really well. I was, I was playing right back, which was a position I, I'd never played before. But uh, so I was struggling with my confidence um, for, for the first few weeks. But then all of a sudden something shifted. My confidence started to grow. And honestly, my confidence wasn't growing because I was doing a good job. My confidence grew because there was a kid on my team named Nate Ackerson. Now, Nate Ackerson is one of the best athletes I would contend that has ever lived in the state of Maine, which is where I'm from. Nate was an unbelievable athlete, and he actually played the position just to the right of me. He played center back. And I remember Nate always had my back. Like if I made a mistake, boom, Nate was there. If, if I let somebody get past me, if I let somebody on offense get past me on defense, boom, Nate was there making a tackle, getting the ball back. Like it gave me confidence knowing that I had Nate by my side and he helped develop me and give me the confidence to become a great right back for our varsity soccer team. See, confidence is an interesting thing. I think for, for some people, it can take years to build, and for others, only moments to be destroyed. Perhaps there have been people in your life that have helped to build your confidence and others that have destroyed your confidence. And so throughout this series, we're, we're going to be asking the question, how would your confidence look different if you truly believed God was with you? How would this affect your relationships? How would this uh, change maybe your interactions with people that you work with? In what ways would it change our daily lives if we truly believed that God was with us? If we actually believed the God of the universe, the same God that spoke planets into existence, the same God that created us from dust, if people actually believed that that God was with them, how would it change and affect your confidence in life? See, before Jesus, uh, before Jesus left the earth, you know, he, he lived on the earth. He, he spent three years in ministry with his disciples. He was uh, murdered, buried in a tomb, rose again. And, and before he ascended back into heaven, he gave the disciples one more mission. He gave them purpose. And then he gave them confidence 
to accomplish that mission. And see, that mission and that purpose that Jesus gave his disciples 2,000 years ago has not changed for anyone today that is a follower and a disciple of Jesus. That mission is actually quite simple. It's to share God's love with others. That's the mission, to share God's love with others. Before Jesus left the earth, right, he ascends back into heaven. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 28 that he gives his disciples, he gives his followers one more command, one more mission to accomplish. And this was the mission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, and this is what it says. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Some of them struggled to believe. Verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now here's, here comes the mission. Here comes the great, what's known as the great commission. Verse 19, therefore, since I've been given all authority, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Remember, I said Jesus gives them confidence. He gives them the mission, then he gives them the confidence. Here comes the confidence. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So so Jesus gives three things, three commands. Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them what Jesus taught. These three things, this is what Jesus tells his disciples to do after he left. It's beautifully simplistic and yet can become so complex because we're human, because we have feelings, we have family histories, we have different relational dynamics, we have socioeconomic divides, we have brokenness, we have pain, we have different beliefs at every turn, we have something, someone trying to sell us something and shape us into something. And so these three simple commands can, they can feel impossible and overwhelming. And then to top it all off, we hear these commands and we may not even know what they mean or where we need to begin. To make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them what Jesus taught, like where where do we start? What does this all mean? And so today I want to, as best I can, just break down what it means to share God's love with others by discipling them, by baptizing them, by teaching and where we should start. And so first, let's start with Jesus when he says in verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, we need to start with the basics. What is a disciple? Jesus says, go and make disciples, but if we don't know what that is, how are we going to do it? So what is a disciple? Well, Another word that we could use in the place of a disciple is apprentice. Like a welder or a plumber or an electrician, you you go and you apprentice 
under someone to learn from them, to be like them. Right? So that's kind of the framework. And now in the biblical times, when in Jesus' time, when it came to religious disciples, there were actually three levels. The first level was kids in grade school. They had a job, they had a task to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, by age 12. Okay, just imagine your 12-year-old has the first five books of the Bible memorized. And most kids, like, that's where it stopped. This is where the kids, you know, they're like, I memorized the five books, I'm done. But if you were really good, you moved on to level two. Level two was you went to the house of learning. Now, this was for 12 to 15-year-olds. And what they would do over the next three years is they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. All 39 books they would have memorized and they would be tutored by the best religious teachers. And then if, if they wanted to go from there and, and only the best got chosen from there, the best would move on to level three, which was to apprentice a rabbi or a religious teacher. What they would do if they were lucky is they would sit with an, for an interview with a religious leader. You would get grilled with questions about your knowledge. How well have you kept the law? How many, how many verses can you quote? Do you know all 39 books of the Bible? And if that religious leader, that rabbi, thought that you were smart enough, they would turn and say, come follow me. And if you made it to that point, you then had three goals. Three goals. To be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi, and to do what your rabbi did. That, that's it. And so a disciple is someone who spent time with a teacher, became like that teacher, and then did what their teacher did. And, and I would contend this is exactly what Jesus calls his disciples to do and be. So, so the first part of what is called the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, is to make disciples. In essence, to help people be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. In other words, to be disciples of Jesus. That's the first part. That's the first. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's the first part. Jesus then moves, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he moves on to this next part. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So maybe you've heard of baptism before and, and you've wondered, like, why do people do this? What, what is baptism? I love how the Apostle Paul he explains it to the early church in Rome in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. This is what Paul says. For we died and were buried with Christ in baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. So, so baptism is a powerful symbol of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus was buried for three days. That is the symbol of dunking underwater, 
right? And then Jesus, three days later, was raised back to life, brought up from the water. That is why in baptism, we, we dunk people underwater and then we bring them back up from the water. It's, it's an expression of an inward change that has occurred in someone's life. It's, it's an outward expression. It's somebody saying, look, this is what happened. My old life is gone. I have a new life now in Jesus. That life was buried underwater. Now I'm, I'm raised again up out of the water to walk in a new life. It's a choice that you make, not your parents, not your grandparents, not your friends, but you make to show people that the old you The person before you met and chose to follow Jesus, that person has been buried in the water and is not coming back up. That person is gone because you've been raised to walk a new life. There is a new you, an apprentice of Jesus. That's the person that came up out of the water. Let me be very clear. Baptism is not what saves you. Baptism is not what saves you, but it shows everyone that you have been saved. And so Jesus tells his followers that once someone chooses to be his apprentice, to be his disciple, their next step is to show and declare publicly, the old me is gone, buried the same way that Jesus was buried, and now I'm raised to walk a new life as an apprentice of Jesus. And we see a beautiful picture of this in the early church. So in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter uh, preaches the gospel of Jesus to a crowd. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said right? So they they decided like, I'm ready to be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciple, to be his apprentice. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. So in this early church picture in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, beautiful picture of people that believed, chose to be an apprentice of Jesus, and their next step was baptism. And so in this one verse, we actually see two out of the three commands that Jesus gives, we see them accomplished. To make disciples, right? People that believed what Peter said became apprentices of Jesus and to baptize them. But the third part remains. There's still that third part that we find in Matthew 28, verse 20. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this so well. He actually writes to the early church in the city of Corinth, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 11. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Like I'm spending time with Jesus. Look at my life. Become like me because I'm becoming like Jesus. That's that's the goal. Now, we've already established that the first part of sharing God's love is making more disciples and baptizing them. 
make more disciples. We talked about what a disciple is, and then we talked about what their next step is to, to publicly declare that the old them is gone, the new them that is chosen to follow Jesus is here. I think this verse, this part, verse 20, this is where we really struggle because we want things now. Like we live in a culture of instant gratification. We want things quickly. We want our Amazon thing overnight. We want our coffee order in 15 seconds. Like we want things, we're, we're, we're much like Veronica, the girl that turns purple in Willy Wonka. We want it now. We want people to choose to follow Jesus and then boom, that's the end. Like they, they're completely transformed. They get it. They, they're, they're perfect. But helping people to learn how to become a disciple of Jesus, that takes time. I mean, <laughs> just think about this. Jesus, the son of God, the greatest teacher to ever live. He walked the earth and spent three years with his disciples. And they still struggled. They still had moments where they're like, I don't get it. They still had moments where they made mistakes. And so if it took Jesus three years and they still didn't figure it out, it might take you some time to disciple someone, to teach them what Jesus taught. But it's through Jesus's life here on earth. It's through how he loved others, how what he taught, how he um, loved people around him, how he cared for the poor and the hurt and the, the needy. It's because of that example that Paul says, listen, like I'm trying to imitate him. So just try to imitate me. I, I love um, this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in, in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, it's only because he became like us, talking about Jesus, it's only because he became like us that we can become like him. Because he gave us the example. He lived the perfect life. Jesus tells his followers, listen, your first task is to help others find their way to me and then help them be like me. Jesus isn't looking for more converts. He's looking for more disciples. He isn't looking for more converts. He's looking for more disciples. He's looking for disciples who will feed the poor, who will care for the sick, who will love the marginalized, who will stand up for the oppressed. He's looking for disciples to be a voice for those without one, to bring peace, to pursue justice, ultimately to share God's love with others the same way that he did. So now the question moves away from the what and the how. Like, what do we do and how do we do it, right? We've answered that. And now the question shifts to the where and the who. And luckily, Jesus answers those questions for us too. In Matthew 28, 19, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And so what are all the nations, right? Well, 
In Acts chapter 1, the writer of the book of Acts, his name was Luke. Luke actually expounds upon the idea of what are all the nations. What did Jesus mean by that? What did Jesus say about that? So Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. This is what Luke writes. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Here we go. Here's the the who and the where. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, so this is Luke in Acts chapter 1 retelling what Matthew explains in Matthew chapter 28. This is Luke's retelling of the Great Commission. Samaria, Jerusalem, and Judea. So not only does Jesus tell us what to do after he leaves, he tells us where and with whom to tell. And the idea that I want to get across here is we want to start local and work your way to global. That's the idea that Jesus is telling his disciples. Listen, I want you to start local and then I want you to work your way to global. Followers of Jesus, your responsibility is to be a witness, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them about what Jesus did Everywhere you go. Let me be very clear. God's love is not reserved to a specific people group. God's love is not reserved to a specific political party. God's love is not bound by borders. God's love is not just for the rich. God's love is not just for the poor. God's love is in the new life that Jesus offers are available to anyone that would choose to accept it. Anyone that choose to accept it, no matter what their background is, no matter what their history is, no matter where they come from, no matter where they're going, if they would choose to become his apprentice, they receive God's love. And I love how Jesus frames this for his followers by using Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now, does this mean he that we need to literally fly to Jerusalem? Like, oh, Brandon, I, I got to book my flight. Like, if this is what Jesus told me to do, I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to go to Jed. I got to go to Samaria. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. Now, that's what he was saying to his disciples 2,000 years ago. But what is, he, what is he asking his disciples today? What is he asking them to do? I think we should still use this model because it actually, it works. It makes sense. See, Jerusalem is your local context. Jerusalem is your local context. This is where the disciples lived in Jesus' day. It's your town. It's your job. It's your city. Jerusalem, are it is the closest spheres of influence that you have. And Jesus says, listen, you got to start there. 
Like if you've started following Jesus, your first responsibility is to begin sharing it in your local context. To to paraphrase Paul, uh, something he says to the early church in Rome, he says, how can your friends and family call on Jesus to save them unless someone tells them about him? And so we have a responsibility. Those that have chosen to follow Jesus have a responsibility to start local, to start within your closest spheres of influence. And then, and only after you've gotten really good at doing that, we start to think a little bigger. We talk about Jesus, Jesus then, Jerusalem, the next one is Judea. I want you to think about Judea like your state. So whatever state you live in, what, what would it look like for you to make disciples and baptize them and teach them what Jesus taught in your home state? I, I want to ask you, like, have you ever dreamt about this? <laughs> have you ever talked with your local pastor about what this looks like? What would it look like for us to reach our entire state and help people find and follow Jesus to become apprentices of Jesus? What, what would that look like? Have you ever sat down and just dreamt about this? How, God, how could, you, how could you use me to help accomplish this in, in Judea, in my home state, here in Massachusetts, or whatever state that you live in? If, if we really believe that God lives with us and offers us his power through the Holy Spirit, we should have confidence that God wants to see more than just our local community transformed. He wants to see our state transformed into disciples of Jesus. And, and this is when Jesus pushes us to start thinking beyond just our closest spheres of influence with family or, or close friends. Judea is the next group. Judea, that's, that may be, that's, that's your neighbors, that's your co-workers, that's parents on your kid's soccer team, that's maybe your local barista. What does it look like for you to share God's love with those people? Do you think about that on a daily basis? What, what does that look like for you to share Jesus with them? And so once we've navigated the Jerusalem piece, right, our local context, then we move to the Judea piece and we look at our state and how can we make disciples here in our state? Then, and only then, do we move to the last big challenge that Jesus gives his followers. So he says, Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria. Now, Samaria, that's your region and beyond. So, so for example, I, I live in New England. I live in New England. Now, I bet... Most of you, if you're watching and you're not from New England, you couldn't even name the New England states. And that's fine. New York is not a part of it. Okay, New York is not a New England state. I got to make that clear. But I, I live in New England. Did you know that New England, that this region, used to be known for its rich spiritual life? It was a, a hub for revival, for churches. It, it's where the second great awakening 
was started in our history. Tens of thousands of people would travel from all across the United States to New England just to see and taste and hear what God was doing in this region of the country. And now New England is known as distant from faith and distant from God. If the spiritual temperature then during the second great awakening was, was red hot, was piping hot, the spiritual temperature now is cold. But it's on the rise. New England is my Samaria. I long to see this part of the country transformed. I long to see this part of the country on fire. Sharing, sharing God's love with everyone that people come in contact with. I long to see vibrant churches full of not converts, but disciples of Jesus. I long to see him work in signs and wonders again in this region. And I want to do everything I can in this life to be used by God as an instrument to make that happen again. And so my question for you is what is your Samaria? What is your Samaria? Maybe it's the Northwest. Maybe it's the Midwest. Maybe it's a part of Canada or South America. I think it, it's good for us to think beyond just our local context. What is your Samaria? Now, I want to propose another way to look at this. And what Jesus also could have been pushing his disciples to understand. There's a reason Jesus dropped Samaria in there. And it's to help his disciples understand that we need to share God's love with our enemies too. See, Samaritans and Jewish people did not get along. In fact, they hated each other. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus' final group of people is Samaritans. So I want you to step out of thinking about your region for a second. Here's what I want you to think about now. Who are your enemies right now that you need to love better? Who are those people in your life that, that if you're being honest, you hate them? How can you show more compassion for them? How can you share God's love with them more? In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A follower of Jesus has one mission in life to make disciples, to baptize them, and teach them what Jesus taught in every corner of the world. And this is how we share God's love with others. So then how do we, how do, we do this, right? How do we do this? Well, it's, it's really easy to get distracted from the mission. 
It's also really easy to overcomplicate that mission. And so maybe today, your reminder just needed to be what Jesus has commissioned you to do. And maybe right now your response is, well, Brandon, that's, that's your job. Like, I bring people to church so the pastor can do those things. I, here's the problem with that. I don't remember Jesus saying, just get them to church and let your pastor do the work. I don't... I don't remember that in Matthew chapter 28. I don't remember that in Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you have a responsibility to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them what Jesus taught. We all have the same mission. We're just doing it through different avenues. There's an author named Robert E. Coleman. He wrote a book. Uh, called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Highly recommend it. Go on Amazon, buy it. Probably about this big. In that book, he's, he's talking about the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, and this is what he says. We must always remember that the goal is world conquest. <laughs> we must always remember that the goal, the mission that Jesus gives us is world conquest. Now, you might hear that and go, whoa, world conquest. What are, we're not Alexander the Great. What's happened? Jesus says, make disciples, baptize them, teach them what I did in all the corners of the earth, in all the nations, in the whole world. The goal is to make as many disciples as we possibly can. We should want to see everyone, everyone we know, Find and choose to follow Jesus at some point in their life. And, and Robert Coleman, he goes on. He says, people are looking for a demonstration, not explanation. People are looking. Don't, don't overcomplicate this. Let your actions show people who Jesus is. Let your life be so different how you live, how you interact, how you love, how you care for. Let your life be so different that when people look at you, they say, why? Why do you live this way? And then tell them. Tell them why. Tell them because of what Jesus did for me, now I want to do that for those around me. Let's pray. God, we thank you because you're good. God, you are the beginning. You are the end. You love us even when we are, <laughs> even when we don't love you. God, help us to, help us to live more like Jesus. Help us to love more like Jesus. God, for maybe the people that are watching that they, they haven't chosen to follow Jesus. God, I, I, pray that, I pray that you would work in their hearts. That they, they would see that he offers them life and purpose and joy and love and forgiveness. And God, that they would choose to follow him. God, help us to not overcomplicate this. Help us to not overthink this. God, help us to be intentional and diligent in sharing God's love 
with those around us in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.